On a dark, wooded road, you wander through the night. You're familiar with your surroundings as you step so surely on, but tonight is different. The snap of a twig catches you off guard, and you begin to hear something. It's low at first, but there's something there. You know you can hear it. Though the fear within you courses through your being, screaming for you to run and find safety, something else is there inside, compelling your curiosity and making you hesitate. Something inside wants to know. You're listening to Whispers in the Night. In my lifetime, I've tried meat from a variety of different animals. Squirrel, rabbit, pheasant. I've tried tripe from a cow and duck. Some others I've had the pleasure of eating are goat, lamb, bear, and I've even had the opportunity to try alligator. I could tell you some of the similarities and differences between the different tastes and textures of all of these. In fact, some of the words that others have used to describe meat from other animals outside of our realm of normalcy are sweet, succulent, gamey, and tender. Though I can't say I have ever (laughs) tried human before, and I hope you haven't either, tonight's episode covers the tasty topic of cannibalism and the legend and folklore of a creature known as the Wendigo. While we're on topic, I should probably mention that I have read human flesh looks like beef, but tastes and feels something like pork. Welcome to Whispers in the Night. My name is Sang Pangduangdet, and I'm your host of this show that explores the paranormal and unexplained, the things that we sometimes fear most through fact, fiction, and folklore. Like I'd mentioned, tonight's episode, the Wendigo. For those of you who have never heard of a Wendigo before, it is a creature of Native American legend that has found its way into the North American folklore. Native Americans would tell stories of an evil spirit of the wilderness that they called Wittigo, Witeko, and Witigo, which all loosely translate to evil spirit that devours mankind. This creature is said to have once been human, being cursed with the transformation into its hideous form after committing the act of cannibalism while possibly lost in the wilderness without food or resources. It has been said to have been encountered by hunters, hikers, and campers in the heavily wooded and forested regions of northern Minnesota, as well as the upper Great Lakes. The Wendigo is said to be capable of enduring harsh conditions of the northern woods, stalking its prey through trickery and deception. It lures unlucky people from their parties who enter its territory or cross its path by taking on a human form to better gain our trust and lead us away so that it can devour victims in the darkness of night. In Algernon Blackwood's suspenseful novella from 1910, titled The Wendigo, A group of hunters on a moose hunting trip encounter this creature in the Canadian wilderness as it tries to deceive and lure members away from the hunting party, which is split to cover more ground. The creature even appears to the hunting party in the night as a hideous parody of one of their missing companions before vanishing into the darkness. The Wendigo is described as a creature who has an insatiable hunger for human flesh that absolutely cannot be satisfied. Many stories tell of a monster whose stature is enormous, sometimes reaching heights of over 15 feet. There are many descriptions of what the Wendigo actually looks like, but legends speak of a creature that looks gaunt to starvation. Its ribcage can clearly be seen jutting out from its sides, matted with patches of fur. Some say it appears to have a skull or a head of a deer or wolf. 
with long human-like arms and long sharp claws. The creature has red eyes, long fangs, and walks on powerful disjointed hind legs that appear to belong to a deer as well. Many still believe this creature still roams the upper Midwest along the heavily forested areas of the Great Lakes. Between the late 1800s and 1920s, a Wendigo is said to have appeared near a town called Roseau in northern Minnesota. It has been claimed that each time a sighting of this creature had been made, an unexpected death followed. The sightings, however, eventually stopped, and things went back to normal. This creature has become a standing metaphor for cannibalism. There's a condition known as Wendigo psychosis, argued among people for its validity, but described as affecting people who have reasonable access to food sources. These people, though capable of utilizing available food and nourishment, inexplicably become overcome with the unquenchable need to consume human flesh. Join me tonight as I explain the creature that has evolved since it was introduced through Native American folklore and has now created a home for itself in the mainstream media without us even knowing. Jen and Kate from This Podcast is Haunted are here with us on the show today. We talk about the Wendigo and dive a little into cannibalism. This and more, all after the break. Stay with us. Have you ever dreamed of creating a podcast to share your personal thoughts, witty ideas, or unique vision with the world? Perhaps you have an existing podcast, but you're looking for something in your price range with the right benefits. Choose Podient. Podient offers an arrange of perks for new or experienced podcasters looking to make their mark on the world with one-on-one technical support from a world-class team. Whether you'd benefit from unlimited storage space, instantly accessing your latest stats broken down into easy-to-read categories, your own blog, auto-posting from your Dropbox account, or social media integration, Podient is right for you. We personally love Podient's latest feature that pushes your new episodes to YouTube. Worried about switching hosts? Worry no more. Podient will do all of the legwork for you by importing your feed and current stats. Podient. You bring the talent. We'll help you to shine. Podient is the official hosting platform for Whispers in the Night. With so many great features, I really couldn't say no. If you'd like to check them out and get 25% off of your first, not one, not two, but three months with Podient, just tell them I sent you. Enter promo code WHISPERS to get a piece of this sweet deal. All right, on with the show. Three hikers leave, one returns. In handcuffs. Or so the headline reads. They don't know the truth. They call me crazy, a cannibal, but they don't know what really happened. So let them try to imprison me, chain me like an animal. I cannot be held by mortal steel any longer. Now I'm sure I don't have to remind you of the events that have led to the act of cannibalism. The sinking of the Essex, the tragedy of the Donner Party, or perhaps the devastating 1972 crash of the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. And these events of incredible desperation, it isn't hard to understand why a group of people would resort to eating flesh of another human being. Though we may not agree that it was the right thing to do, we understand completely. My guests on the show today are a podcast duo from Michigan, who also really enjoy eating up a good conversation about cannibalism. This podcast is Haunted's. Jen and Kate appeared on my show last season to talk about urban legends, but they are back joining me and talking about the Wendigo. Hey girls, how's it going? Oh man, it's going. We're going. (laughs) (laughs) What does that even mean? (laughs) Sorry, I was being very melodramatic when we last recorded because I'm in grad school now. I think last time... We talked like a million years ago, saying, yeah. <laughs> and so since then I've moved to New York and I'm going to grad school and we're just still podcasting, but no, it's good. I actually just finished a bunch of stuff. So like today I'm feeling accomplished and that I can take a break for a second. So and I'm fine. sure you, yeah, you earned it, man. You're working so hard. I'm super impressed with you. Oh, thank you. I have not done anything new or different and it's been amazing. Uh, you're living your best life. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't go that far, but, like, at least I'm not working hard. <laughs> uh, now, saying you have had 
quite a lot of life changes, right? Like, I believe a new home and... Yeah. Let's talk about that for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) So I moved into this... uh, Okay, so uh, I've lived on the border of Minnesota and North Dakota for like the past... Is that the Fargo area? Um, Fargo-Moorhead? Yep, Fargo-Moorhead. Okay. Yep. And I've just kind of bounced back over the years, back and forth. And I've decided over the years that I like Minnesota better. And so I recently just moved back into Minnesota into a house. And this house is kind of creepy. I mean, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll post a picture of it online for any of my listeners. But there have been a couple of times where some strange stuff has happened. Shut up. You are so lucky. <laughs> oh, my God. Tell us everything. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because uh, <laughs> uh, Meg bought me a K2 for Christmas. So... I, I just want to pull it out and use it, but you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to do it in your own home. Um, yeah. One of the first nights we were there, we, we had a, we had our mattress on the floor. We hadn't put the frame together yet. And I swear, I I heard footsteps coming up the stairs. And they oh, were my like, God. <laughs> and they, they weren't. No. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't threatening. It just sounded like somebody was trying not to wake us up coming up the stairs okay. uh, <laughs> are you familiar with that youtube video creeper in my apartment yes that new york city mm-hmm. you know and this lady's like living in the crawl space like a homeless lady's like eating his food Ooh. peeing in his sink living yeah. stop so maybe that's what it is maybe they were trying to not wake you up maybe oh, it's not my. a ghost and you have a moorhead creeper is that worse? It might be worse. It might be. It might be. <laughs> oh, it it definitely. I would absolutely take the undead over a fucking uh, human person. Right. Um, I. Actually... Oh, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> Ladies first. I'm no lady, sir. I'm a. <laughs> I'm just a civilized whore. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I I I am feel I feel much more threatened by other humans than I ever have anything spiritual. Okay. But another thing that's happened since we've moved in is uh, we use the back door for everything. Uh, our parking spots in the back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I just, yeah. Kate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Remember when I said I was civilized a second ago? It was a lie. <laughs> okay. I'll behave. I'll behave. I'll behave. Anyway. <laughs> you were talking about using the back door frequently. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, <laughs> I was uh, letting our dog out on the, on the tie out in the back, and in our kitchen there we have cupboards, and then above our cupboards are another set of cupboards. And since I'm only five seven, and Meg is shorter than I am, we never oh. use those. <laughs> <laughs> and so I let the dog out, and as I'm coming back in the top corner cupboards open no 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 and i i don't care for that shit at all yeah i stopped and i was like meg and she's like what and i'm like did you and i'm like no there's no possible way and i I pointed it out and she's like no i didn't uh anyway yeah okay so it's not too late you could move out yeah well i'm I'm really curious i want to know i want to know i want to believe (laughs) <laughs> oh speaking of new experiences though yeah i Jen, are you about to tell us about your back door <laughs> no <laughs> so so recently i gave a couple ghost tours at, at our local mm-hmm. haunted house and i did not experience this because i never fucking experience anything and i'm so bitter about it but uh between uh there was like i was the second tour going through mm-hmm. and the first guy who was leading the tour there's like it's a big old fancy like Downton Abbey style house. And um, so there's, of course, like the bell rings for the, the servants. And he was demonstrating it. He just like joked and like he pulled the, the pole to make it ring. Yeah. And like, oh, yeah, that's how it works. Continued the tour, brought them into the dining room. I'm upstairs, like kind of directly above this, but not really. Okay. And the bell rang again, like clear, like not just like a residual like vibrations but like ding 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 like like someone had pulled the thing again and we've been trying to figure it out but no one can figure and like all of us like no one was there we don't know but yeah that happened 
Okay, so um, speaking of that cupboard, here's kind of how it goes for people Uh uh, listening at home. I'm just showing a picture to uh, Jen and Kate here. Um, This picture is actually, so the first time it happened, it was like January 20th. This picture, Mm -hmm. three days ago. (laughs) Are you serious? So uh, it keeps happening. Yeah, we came home for lunch. Okay, so then I mm-hmm. come out of the kitchen and I sit down across the table that's looking at that, and the freaking the fucking cupboard's open <laughs> again. Oh my god! And like at this time, like this is what I look like. I, I could go like this, and I just pointed, and Meg is sitting to my right, just like her side to the the cabinet, and she looks over and she's like, "Oh, what the fuck ever." She went. <laughs> she tried to. Uh, she shut it, and then she tried to open it easily. It doesn't open easily. It latches. Okay. Easily. Great. Shit, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, my biggest issue isn't finding out my friend was a Wendigo. It was the fact that they'd had me around for dinner the week before they tried to, well, have me for dinner. Alright, so cannibalism is so sensationalized on television. We see it in the movie Hannibal, as well as the television series, um, along with Silence of the Lambs, true crime films and documentaries, television shows about people like Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, we, we see it mostly in the media through zombie films and television shows, things like The Walking Dead, where there's this insatiable need to feed on human flesh, which is usually brought on by a fever. and with no pun intended, we really just eat it up. Why do you two think that we as human beings just love this idea so much that it has become such a colossal topic in mainstream media? I, I no, That's a really interesting question. I think it kind of falls into a similar category as like ghost stories and true crime in general, where it's just kind of this fascination with the morbid and taboo. I there there should be like volumes and volumes of books about this but i i read one that's called the art of the english murder by lucy worsley and she talks a lot about why particularly artists and like literary artists are fascinated by true crime and gruesome tales of death and like talking about the murderers and like you know describing their executions and like why everyone goes to see executions (laughs) and so I wonder if it has something to do with that where it's just it's something that's so out of the ordinary and so kind of like shunned from like polite society that it's you know it feels like you're dancing naked in the woods a little bit like you're you're kind of indulging in those naughty like you know (laughs) stories that you're not supposed to like be interested in but you are i mean we're all like that i think a little, yeah. bit. A little bit of delicious living to reference <laughs> yes. a, a goat of the my acquaintance it's kind of a, a way to explore uh those more dangerous things as well as you know some thoughts about the afterlife uh but also that it's we're fascinated with it because it's so antithetical i don't i've only read that word so i might be saying it wrong no and, i think that's right Hey, good for me. Um, it's so opposite of the normal progression of a body. You know, our we are we are societal creatures, and for us to desecrate the dead mm-hmm. and and to mm-hmm. confuse something as life giving as eating a meal with the desecration of our loved ones is a very upsetting and fascinating and confusing idea, I I think I would imagine, for most societies around the world. I didn't blame myself. I didn't make it snow. I didn't burn the cabin down. I didn't ask to be hungry. No, I blame my friends who didn't run far enough, fast enough. With each one I grow larger, stronger, but never full. Soon I'll be unstoppable, and it'll be all their fault. In preparation for this episode, I asked Jen and Kate for their help researching so we can provide a clearer look at tonight's topic. And I have to say, I was completely blown away at just how much preparation 
they had in store for me. Here's Kate with her findings on the Wendigo. I think you might be surprised too. This is one of my favorite subjects uh, because I, well, I'm a history teacher and at, at a museum, so I really enjoy uh, learning about the woodland people who lived here pre-colonization from Europe. Uh, so the Wendigo is found in actually a couple lakes cultures, uh, specifically uh, the Algonquin and the Iroquois, both of which uh, used the connections from New York through Michigan up to Minnesota. Uh, they have places, uh, villages in all that area. Uh, get over towards Minnesota less and less, but certainly between New York and Michigan, there's a strong connection by water. Uh, the Iroquois, same thing. Now let's talk about uh, what is a Wendigo. It's important to understand the cultures that these come from. Uh, first and foremost, the Algonquin uh, and the Iroquois lived in roughly the same region. So we're talking the Great Lakes up through the East Coast. Uh, they had a tribe and village structure, a couple hundred people, mostly closely knit, single family units. Um, their villages were mobile. They traveled around a lot. Part of that mobility is also coming into contact with Iroquois people regularly. And it wasn't always happy and joyous interactions. They were regularly at war, the Algonquins and the Iroquois. And what we've, as Americans, uh, we certainly know that one of the best ways to learn about another culture is by trying to kill them. Ah. <laughs> yeah, it's dark. It's <laughs> it must dark. be why we're so good at it. Uh, so the Iroquois and the Algonquin were regularly at war. Uh, the Wendigo is more strongly associated uh, with Algonquin culture, but it seems like in the course of these battles and peace treaties and battles and peace treaties uh, that the idea got passed along. Um, so these groups are hunting, fishing, gathering, uh, light farming, substance farming. Uh, let's talk about fishing for just a second. The Great Lakes at this point in time, this is pre-colonization from Europe, so effectively before 1491, the Great Lakes were so filled with fish that it was very easy to get enough protein to feed villages. Between that and the law, lo- are you guys familiar with the Three Sisters Garden? No. Yeah, yes. Okay, yes. so if a, a Three Sisters Garden, just for those of you who don't know, is a garden grown with corn, beans, and squash. And one of the great things about those three foods is that they help each other when they're growing. That's why they're called the sisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, the corn grows. It, it provides with its body the trellis for the beans to grow. And then the squash pushes away other what we would call weeds. So it because corn has such a small root, it would have been very possible to kill the corn quite easily. So between the fishing and the rich forests and the fertile soil for growing these three sisters, not to mention the wealth of animals in a forest that was, you know, primarily wilderness, food is readily available. For the most part, famine in these areas is uh, very rare. Their diet is seasonally varied. There's a great deal of nutrition in all the food that we're discussing here, uh, which allowed for a relatively high population. Uh, We can see that as we go through before the outbreak of smallpox. There were actually quite a lot of people comparable to, you know, what we would consider regular villages today. Uh, the idea was that everybody would share and that there was always enough, which brings us around to cannibalism. Ooh. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. an interesting segue. <laughs> it is an interesting segue, but I will, <laughs> I will pack it up, I promise. So historically, looking at uh, cases when cannibalism is practiced, it's, it's not a common I don't want to call it a phenomena, because, but it, it's certainly not commonly practiced. And there's a couple of good reasons for that. We'll talk about that in a moment. It is common enough that we've all heard of it. We find it in human cultures around the world and throughout time, but it really wasn't part of the woodland Native American experience. That's why I think they associate it so strongly with demon or evil activity, because there was enough food. Uh, cannibalism is practiced in some places where there's severe food stress. Cannibalism would be practiced uh, concerned about the gods giving them enough, whereas the woodland Native Americans largely had a fairly cushy existence. Hard winters aside, you know, they were prepared for those hard winters. And, you know, even in the hard winters, they could always find beaver, for example. They would know where to find beaver in their uh, dams. So it was uh, also associated with greed, 
one of the things that we find amongst these Native American communities is that they were largely what we would consider communist. Nobody owned anything. Everybody was provided for about as equally as possible. I mean, some pigs are more equal than others, but the idea is still there. And so to take more than you need, to deprive other people, and then also to eat the dead. Uh, Algonquin burial, uh, there was a huge feast. Their bodies were buried with lots of gifts, wrapped in skins in the fetal position, but sitting up as if they were going back into a womb. And sometimes they were put underneath a burial pyramid or a mound was constructed over them, and they were never to be disturbed. To disturb the dead, to, to deny them those burial rites, all of this flies in the face of the traditions of these people. That's why the Wendigo is kind of the ultimate evil. Um, it's something that caused a craze. Uh, once the Wendigo was effectively let loose, the nothing could stop them. Uh, so the it was associated with insanity, cannibalism, murder, greed. These are all taboos that are somewhat reminiscent of our seven deadly sins. And so uh, they translate... The word uh, Wendigo may translate to an evil that devours. So that brings us to what it looked like. The idea of the Wendigo is that it was a gaunt, emaciated figure. Its skin is tight over the bones. The bones push out underneath this waxy skin. You smell decaying. The lips are tattered and bloody, where they've been trying to devour so fiercely, so quickly, eat as much as possible, that they were biting off pieces of their lip, trying to get to the other flesh. Uh, the Iroquois also said that they were 15 feet tall, although we don't find that from what I could find in the Algonquin. So the Iroquois believed them also to be giants. And they're sort of this living embodiment of irony. They are insatiably hungry, kind of like how we think of maybe a rage zombie. Um, insatiably hungry, but at the same time starving to the point of decay. They look incredibly gaunt and emaciated, but they're eating constantly. Uh, and so what we might be able to draw from this is that ultimately, whether or not you believe in the Wendigo is is up to you, but we could look at this as a morality myth because it's a warning about what happens to people in these tribes who commit taboos. They eat, They take more than their share, they murder, they disturb the dead. Um, and so uh, if that happens to you, oh, you could go crazy. You could turn into this demon. You could uh, spread this infection to others. Uh, so the myth encourages cooperation and moderation. Uh, it also provides kind of a basis for law. And that's so this this basis for law is how you deal with the Wendigo. The only way to cure a Wendigo is to kill them. Uh, so these, this psychosis, Wendigo psychosis, um, which there's two ways to think about Wendigo psychosis. Uh, modern historians are pretty um, wary or leery of it. But in the 80s, there were people who genuinely believed that this psychosis could be brought on. And there actually is some historic evidence for that. We can talk about that in just a second. Um, okay, so uh, the, the basis for law. So because you are, it, it basically gives you a reason, uh, you being tribal elders, tribal council, it would give you a reason to use capital punishment on somebody who's breaking these taboos. Uh, their cannibalism, murder, insanity, something like that. Well, it's the Wendigo. Okay, so if the only way to cure the Wendigo is by killing the person, then we have a basis for law. There's something that uh, we're doing this for the greater good. It has to be done. And and uh, there there are some there are two interesting stories that I just wanted to briefly talk about that do come uh, from effectively Caucasian reports of the actions of Native American people. Uh, the first one is dating back to 1661. Um, so this uh, Jesuit report uh, is. They're reporting on something that happened the previous winter. Uh, the ailment was unknown to the French Jesuits, but it was known to the Native Americans. They described it as a combination of lunacy, hypochondria, and frenzy, but it was provided a more than canine hunger, and it was pouncing upon women and children and even large men. And then the Jesuit references something from a Germanic culture like werewolves. 
and he also describes it as rabid. The victims were put to death to stop the spread of the madness because no other treatment existed. Mm. So that all transpired before the Jesuits. That was 1661. Another story I want to share from history is 1878. This is the Plains Cree in Alberta. This is a Canadian story. It's a time of famine in this Plains area. Uh, A man, Native American man, he was Cree. His name was Swift Runner. He butchered his family, wife, and five kids in times of food stress. Okay, maybe. You know, maybe. It's mm-hmm. it's food stress. He doesn't have enough to eat. Uh, yeah. and, and madness can set in, as we saw, Jen, when we talked about Russia that one time. Um, so this is 1878. Uh, what, what comes to pass, though, it's not enough that he butchered his family, his wife and five kids. He was just a two-day walk from emergency food supplies at the Hudson Bay. So... Butchering his family was unnecessary, and he knew it. Oh, shit. Yeah. That's that's weird. So that's why they're calling it Wendigo psychosis. Uh, It provides a madness that is outside reason. Uh, But again, modern uh, historians and doctors give that term a sidelong look. So grain of salt, grain of salt, grain of salt. Hmm. It stalks at night and in the cold. Each night the silence falls and each night one fewer person rises. The bare trees mimic its skeletal form as it lurks among them. It's just me now. It's just been me for a while now. Maybe now it's safe. Maybe it won't get me. Okay, so I have to apologize for everyone to hear, and here's why. The podcast has a new writer, Gemma Amor, who submitted this story to me in what seems to be like a lifetime ago. In preparation for this episode, I reached out to her after finding out what phenomenal work she does and how great of a writer she really is, and she wowed me with this entry. So, you have my complete most sincere apology for taking so long to release this episode. But trust me, it was definitely worth the wait. Introducing Gemma's premiere story for Whispers in the Night, narrated by the brilliant Q Dyer, who has been so amazing in all of her work for the show. I give you Wendigo. My best friend is dead. I try not to think about it as I awake in the hole. I stretch gingerly. My arms and hands tingle with pins and needles, a hangover from a night spent sleeping on hard, unforgiving dirt. A tree root digs into my lower back. My legs, both broken from the fall, give off a raw, fierce ache. I can hear bones grinding when I move, and feel blood trickling along my skin. I can also feel infection setting in. I have a fever. I am hot, and yet I shiver. My teeth chatter. My lips are parched, cracked, crusted. I look around me for something to drink. I have finished the contents of my water bottle. That's okay. When I first fell down here, I managed to rig up a moisture-trapping contraption with some leftover plastic food wrap and a tin camping mug. Overnight, a heavy dew collects on the surface of the wrap. A tiny hole I made with one of my earrings lets the moisture collect into the cup below. In the morning... I tremblingly sip what meager liquid has collected. It has kept me alive so far. That, and my best friend's blood. Her name was Jennifer. She was 27 years old. She had blonde hair, blue eyes, and a gap between her two front teeth. Now, her hair is matted and stained with mud. 
twigs and leaves are tangled up in the filthy blonde strands. Her eyes are missing from her skull. She no longer looks like my best friend. Poor Jennifer. What a sad way to die. Sometimes, when I sleep, I remember what it felt like eating Jennifer. I remember the screams she made when I slammed a rock against the side of her head. I remember the choking, gurgling noises she made when, having failed to knock her unconscious, I scrambled on top of her, ignoring the pain in my useless, shattered legs. I remember how she fought when I wrapped my hands around her throat. She fought hard, her eyes wild and wide with fear. But I was stronger. I won. She lost. I guess I just wanted to survive more than she did. And I had to eat, didn't I? What was I supposed to do, starve down here? Besides, I blamed her entirely for my predicament. It was her idea to go camping, and her idea to take a new trail through the woods. And then, when we lost that trail, it was her idea to try a shortcut, rather than retrace our steps and go back the way we'd come. And so, we got lost. Lost in the woods, miles from civilization, or even a decent place to camp. We marched around in circles, getting increasingly more panicked. All the trees look the same out here. There are no landmarks. It's just tree trunks, fallen leaves, and the occasional scrap of sky up above. And then it happened. One minute, we were walking, tramping through the undergrowth and arguing over our map, banging our failing compasses against our hands in a vain attempt to get them to work properly. The light was fading, and we had been walking for twelve hours, getting more and more desperate. And then the next minute... There was a sudden creaking, cracking sound. And with a rush of falling dirt, leaves, and rubble, we fell and landed hard. So hard, I knocked myself unconscious for a few minutes. When I came to, the back of my head was covered in blood, and I realized my legs were broken. I could hear Jennifer sobbing in the dark next to me, where I lie still. I looked about me, trying to determine where we were in the thickening gloom. Eventually, I realized that we were at the bottom of a hole, a great earthen shaft of old, rotting bits of timber and iron sticking out of the sides. It looked like an abandoned mine shaft, or a well, or something similar. It's man-made, but beyond that, I don't know. I'm no expert. I grew up in New York City. I can barely tell one tree from another. It doesn't matter, anyway. What matters is that the shaft is about ten feet deep. The walls are too slippery and steep to get any purchase on, so I can't climb out. I'm trapped here until I die. Or until someone finds me. It took a while to come to terms with my situation. To acknowledge that I was, in fact, stuck and that rescue was highly unlikely. Like a silly girl, I'd had hope, initially. Hope that then faded as the light had faded. I realized, once I'd calmed down, that from the way I'd landed, which must have been ankles first, I shattered the bones in my legs too badly to try to escape. Jennifer had fared only slightly better. Her right arm hung limply from her shoulder, dislocated and probably broken in the wrist area if the shape was anything to go by. I could smell her blood on the air. It was a rich, heady scent that filled my nostrils and made me feel hot and sweaty. We shouted for help until our voices wore out. Oh, how we shouted over and over again, but the only thing that answered back was the night and the creatures of the forest. Owls hooted from neighboring pines. Something else screamed in the distance, a dog or a coyote, maybe. Like I said, I don't know. I'm a city girl. It could have been a goddamn Wendigo for all I knew, or cared. 
It hurts to remember those first few days. I am a different person now. A changed being. I feel stronger somehow, despite the pain in my legs. I think my vision has improved. The night no longer seems to scare me. The only thing that scares me is this relentless hunger in my belly. I've never felt anything like it before. It's a purely primal feeling. A feeling that consumes every part of me. I am hungry. From my place at the bottom of this hole, I can see the branches of larch and pine trees above, making a thick green curtain in the sky. A dim, weak sunlight filters through. I hear birds singing and make out the noises of small animals foraging through the undergrowth. Dawn is approaching. It is my eleventh dawn in the hole. And I am hungry. I look across at Jennifer's body, or what's left of it. Her corpse lies a few feet from me, contorted, bent, her arms and legs arranged at odd, impossible angles. I've covered her head with my rucksack. I don't want to see her staring at me with those empty eye sockets. Some of the most flavorsome parts of her had been her cheeks, her lips, and her tongue. But those parts are missing, and she isn't exactly an oil painting to look at. What little meat remained after I'd feasted on her had begun to rot, or had been scavenged by vermin. She is now mostly skeleton, gristle, hair, and clothes, although I had to strip her of most of those to get to the meat. Poor Jennifer. Poor Jennifer. But I had been so hungry. So, so hungry. I hear a squeak, and a rat climbs over one of my legs, investigating Jennifer's corpse for any more scraps of food or flesh or bone upon which to breakfast. He starts tugging on the index finger of Jennifer's right hand, the tip of which is now just exposed bone. His yellow teeth make nibbling, gnawing sounds against it. My stomach rumbles. I wonder if I can catch this rat, if I'm quiet. Rat flesh doesn't compare to human flesh, but beggars can't be choosers. I lean forward, one hand reaching out as stealthily as I can manage. The rat ignores me, intent on its meal. It squeaks and snuffles and chews contentedly. I hate this rat. Why should he eat when I am so hungry? I feel anger welling up inside of me, fueling my appetite even further. And I am just about to grab this rat by the tail when a strange, unexpected noise echoes around the hole. It's a noise unlike anything I'd ever heard before. It's a guttural, growling noise with strange clicks and squeaks interspersed. It sounds both animal and human. The noise is followed by another long, drawn-out hissing sound. Then the growl, the clicks and the squeaks repeat themselves, followed again by the hiss. I take a deep breath, and the hissing noise returns, like steam whistling from a kettle. I exhale, and there it is again. I freeze. My heart thumps loudly in my chest. My blood pounds deep and incessant in my ears. Carefully, I open my mouth. A deep, animal growl burbles up from the pit of my hungry belly. It rises up my dry, sore throat and erupts out of my poor, cracked lips in a great torrent of despair. 
It is a roar. Feral, rasping, rumbling, shrieking, gravelly snarl. The sort of sound that a lion might make. The sound of an apex predator. The sound of a monster. The sound is coming from me. I cry out, this time in fear, and my voice rips a hole into the early morning air, echoing around the hole and into the forest. Birds take flight, and all other creatures grow still. I howl once more, wondering what it is I am turning into. My fever spikes, and my sight blurs. Moaning and roaring as a sick beast would, I slowly sink back into the earth, shivering, coated in sweat, feeling my body begin to twitch, contort, change. My bones creak and crackle, and my skin stretches so tight in places that it begins to split like overripe fruit. Panting, groaning, I writhe on the floor next to the body of my friend, the friend that I ate, the friend whose flesh has sustained me. Something erupts from a bright spot of pain on my forehead, and my hands rush up to feel something large, long, and horn-like growing from what used to be the smooth skin along my hairline. It is an antler. A long, jagged, bony antler, and before I can react, its sister thrusts its way out of my skull like a flower thrusting up into the sunshine of spring. Blood sprays the walls around me, and the antlers keep growing upwards like the branches of a tree. Incoherent with pain, I begin to slide into blissful unconsciousness. My brain tries to make sense of this fresh trauma as I slip into oblivion. What is happening to me? What am I becoming? Have I survived so long only for this? To become this? Darkness comes, and it is sweet. But darkness doesn't last forever. I wake up for the last time on the morning of the twelfth day in the hole. I am not me anymore. I am something better. The legend of the Wendigo is a complicated one, but there is a common theme that runs throughout each story. Consuming the flesh of another human being is bad. It does bad things to you. It turns you into the very devil himself, a beast from the bowels of the earth, an envoy from hell. Demon, evil spirit, Wendigo. I was human when I fell into this hole. Now, I am reborn. My fingers are longer, thinner, and crabbed. My nails are long and thick, like a dog's claws. When the sun climbs higher into the sky, I can see the color of my skin. It's an ochre yellow. Thick patches of bristly fur grow in odd clumps all over my body. They itch, and I scratch at them to no avail. My arms are strangely sinewy and lean, and yet thick cords of muscle ripple beneath the skin. My legs aren't broken anymore. They fuse together into long, pale, double-jointed limbs that look like the hind legs of a wolf. They are strong, and I know I will be fast upon them. I open my mouth, and my dry lips feel thinner somehow. My tongue, fuzzy and swollen, now feels like it won't fit inside of my jaw properly. Sharp teeth curve down beneath my lips and press into my chin. I am transformed. I stand up, taller than when I was human. I flex my fingers and loosen the muscles in my neck and shoulder. I place a clawed hand experimentally on the wall of the shaft. Suddenly, this hole doesn't seem so steep, or too high to climb out of. Which is good, because I am ravenous. 
I dig my clawed feet into the rough dirt and quickly, like a spider, begin to scale the wall, making my way towards the light of day. The bones of my friend I shall leave here in the darkness, a souvenir of my past life. They say that mankind has no other natural enemy, no real predator. They were wrong. I am hungry. I am reborn. And I am hunting. Okay, before we get on with the final leg of the show, I wanted to quickly tell everyone about yet another contest we have for the show. If you haven't heard, Whispers in the Night has recently partnered up officially with TeePublic to bring you the best in merch. Well, starting today, April 29th, Audio Drama Sunday, I will be holding a competition for a feature story on the podcast. The topic... Stories on UFO and extraterrestrial phenomena make it chilling. Because I'm looking for a chilling story from two to 3,000 words. Besides having your story crafted into an audio drama to be featured on the show, the winning entry will receive their choice of a Whispers in the Night tea or tank just in time for summer from our tea public store. Once again, that's 2,000 to 3,000 words. Submissions must be entered by May 27th, 2018 by midnight Central Standard Time. Many will enter. Only one will win. Email your stories to whispersinthenightpodcast at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Okay, I just wanted to ask you two one more fun question right before we have to part ways once again. And here goes. Do you think that if you were in a dire situation, let's say a plane crash or a shipwreck, whatever crazy thing that left you stranded in some wilderness, that you would resort to cannibalism to survive? Kate is already, of course, on board. I, yeah. Well, okay. So putting myself in a dire situation, Mm -hmm. um, I would never kill anybody. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it depends on the person. Yeah. yeah. If if it were me and Hitler and Gandhi in a dugout, like well, a trench or something, that's not and fair. Somebody's Gandhi go. was very skinny. <laughs> yeah, but I'm very fat. <laughs> somebody's <laughs> got to go. Uh, would I be willing to plug Hitler in the eye and then eat him? Yes, yes, I would. Uh, and I'm very comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I, I would have more trouble in a situation uh, that we described with the 1920s Russian crisis, mm-hmm. where family members were literally yeah. eating their children and selling the body parts at market. Yeah, those yeah. pictures are gruesome. That's, the pictures mm-hmm. are very. They'll never leave me. Yeah. Those photos will never leave me. Um, but the couldn't do that. Yeah. I, it, I, I, the calculation required in that, mm-hmm. um, I would, I would rather you eat me. Also, I would be delicious. I am like Kobe beef over here. <laughs> Just, I do so little and I eat wonderfully okay. Okay. as in like full of really fatty food. So I assume I taste like a Twinkie. How about you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would, okay. So I would, I have, to, I would probably do it out of desperation. Um, I can't imagine. I think my will to survive is probably stronger than my distaste for eating human flesh. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I have such a sense of self-preservation that I probably would definitely do it. I, again, like Kate, I don't think I, I'd have a really hard time killing someone in order to eat them. <laughs> of course, depending on the person, first, depending on the person. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I would be totally like, I I've said this before. I really don't give a shit what happens to my own body when after I die. Um, it's just a meat suit. So if you if it'll nourish someone, like 
go for it. I don't have a ton of meat to offer, but what I have, I give to you. Okay. <laughs> you would make amazing Jennifer Satay. Yeah, you know, just some... Like, some nice whatever. peanut sauce. Yeah, so like, oh. I like I like that. Nice yeah, you can... <laughs> well, um, yeah, I was just about to ask you guys what you would cook with a person, but I decided that was too far, and so I'm going to reel it that's, in instead. That's a lot. That's a lot to that's consider. So much. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> <Just>, nope. <laughs> I, I don't know if I would be able to eat another person. I, really? I feel like I would let myself starve to death or let people eat me. Um, just because, like, I don't know. I just, I have that strong, like, Superman morality where I just... Save everybody. Yeah. yeah. I'd rather, yeah. And it'd be so, I get that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would rather you eat me. Unless it's, if it's me, Hitler, and Gandhi, <laughs> I'm still going to take out Hitler. But if it was, like, the three of us, uh-huh. guys, you could feast on me for months. See, so... I think for me, it depends on who dies first. Yeah. Because, like, I don't want to, I mean, I don't particularly want to eat someone. But I also don't, I don't want to murder someone. I also don't particularly want to be murdered. So, yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to see. I'm just, I would be the one to just, we'll like, wait see. it out. <laughs> wait it out to see who go who drops first yeah. and if it's me fine if it's someone else i'm probably gonna eat them <laughs> you won't have to wait long i am i will kill myself i am not going to suffer my last days it on this earth it would be harder if i knew the person though yeah like i would if i had some emotional attachment mm-hmm. i think it would be a little more difficult yeah. is it weird that i feel the opposite <laughs> like <laughs> would you rather eat me than gandhi I mean, uh, well, let's consider. First off, Gandhi would be piss poor eating. <laughs> that's oh. true. Yeah. Just just real mealy, I feel. Um, <laughs> no, that's terrible. Okay, what well, uh, about me compared to someone of my same general, like, body shape and composition? <clears throat> You'd rather eat me. <laughs> it's okay. You can okay, there's a couple of reasons why. <laughs> First off, I know that you would be deeply uncomfortable eating somebody else. So I would I would take you out for your own comfort. Uh, I know I could push oh. down quickly and painlessly. It'd be like George and Lenny, if you get the reference. <laughs> and, and I want to tend them rabbits. Just... That's right. Yeah, Jen. Go ahead. Like petting rabbits, and then you just come up behind me. Exactly. Oh and then later I eat you. Plus... I know that I would be able to... You know to... what? That's not a bad way to go, though. So, yeah, it, exactly. Okay. I wouldn't let you suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think it would be my instinct more to take myself out first and just, like, leave a recipe book so you guys aren't eating yeah. me in some shitty white trash way. Like, <laughs> also, I would probably die from eating anyone because I have terrible, like, survival skills, and so I would, like, not do it right. <laughs> I'm useless. <laughs> In the wild. Hey, you can embroider now, thanks to grad yeah, school. I can get a husband <laughs> in 18th century. Yeah, there you go. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> oh, this is this is so dark. Um, yeah, so I'm very comfortable eating humans is the summation of this podcast. I feel like we're on kind of a scale where you're like, you're like the most. I'm kind of in the middle. And then Sang's like, yeah. nah. Uh, I don't know. All right, girls. Well, it's time to say goodbye again. But as always, I had a lot of fun. Whether it's your show or mine, we always have some great laughs and talk about some pretty rich subjects. Thank you for listening to Sang and come listen to us and we can be one big podcast family. Uh, And Sang, it's always so wonderful to talk to you. And I like I just love having pod friends. I like we we've never met. We live how many states away, but I feel like we're friends now. Like, and it's just it's so good, and I love this. It is a weird form of intimacy, that's for sure. Like, like you're the sort of person. Like, if somebody were shit talking your show, I would drive to their house and throw a slushie in their face. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. You gotta stick together. Uh, But I never be like crappy band. That's right. Yeah, man, we're crappy as hell. Yeah. No, I, I really, I value you having us on, and your interview skills are excellent. Uh, I respect the shit out of you, and so uh, thank you for having us on. 
Yeah, thank I said, you for oh, being here. There. That's okay. <laughs> uh, all, like doing that thing, just sit around, congratulate each other. Like, oh my god, it's so great, it's so good. But mutual yeah, no, admiration society. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like also for okay, so like bringing back to the listeners, like mm-hmm. it's just so like I am always amazed that people listen to our show, and like there's there's so many thousands of podcasts out there, and so like it really means a lot to all of us. I know that anyone chooses to listen to like you know a specific show that they make and so like I I know saying that you like appreciate the hell out of your listeners too and like it's just ah so just thank you for listening and choosing us and you know and being part of this like little weird community of people and yeah it's just it's good (laughs) you guys are the actual best yeah and for my listeners, uh, people who haven't heard of this podcast is haunted and would like to check it out. How can they find your show? Okay, well, if you are interested in listening to this podcast is haunted, you can find us at this podcast is haunted. Um, we are on Twitter at haunted underscore pod, and this podcast is haunted at most other things, Instagram and Facebook. Stay spooky, motherfuckers. As I close the show tonight, I just wanted to give another huge thanks to Jen and Kate of This Podcast is Haunted for joining me once again on the show. I always have a great time, ladies. We talk about the paranormal, we scare the shit out of each other, and we have our laughs about things including how long we imagined it would take to edit out our awkward ums, our big breaths, and awkward silences. Oh, yeah, if you want to cut out all my breathing, that'll be fun. Um, I'll, I'll take six years but enjoy. Yeah. I'll just be an old man next time you hear from me. <laughs> yes. uh, do you have any Shang? I knew a guy named Shang once. It was many Ooh. years ago. <laughs> I haven't heard that name in years. Uh, <laughs> took terrible Star Wars. Years, but I finally did it. I finally. <laughs> uh. <laughs> A special thanks tonight also goes out to the very wonderful Gemma Amor for her story, Wendigo, performed by Q Dyer. Thanks to you both. Thanks also to Lindsay Boyd and Henry Schrader for performing our microfiction entries from our contest. Now, these stories were all sprinkled throughout this episode between the segments. In the last episode, I introduced a little contest I was holding on social media where I had listeners submit their own microfiction stories to be featured on the show. The concept was very easy. 280 characters, one subject. You submit a chilling story for a chance to be featured. In this episode, we had four microfiction stories about tonight's topic, the Wendigo. So, a huge shout-out goes to everybody who submitted an entry, but especially to Stella Brewster, Rachel Reynolds, at MicroFlashFiction on Twitter, and Zoe for entering such chilling pieces for me to feature. The show's intro music is by John Ryder of the band Plastic Me. Other music in this episode is by Kevin MacLeod. You can find these tracks along with an entire library of others by going to incompetech.com. Whispers in the Night is host through Podient. If you're looking to dabble in the world of podcasting, perhaps create your own, you can do so by going to podient.co. Tell them that I sent you. Use the promo code WHISPERS at checkout to receive 25% off of not one, not two, but like I said earlier, your first three months. As always, thanks to Midwest Made Shop for making the show possible. Midwest Made is an accessory boutique right here in the heart of the Midwest, bringing you made-to-order items that are knit, sewn, and crocheted to fit whatever needs you have. Whether it be bow ties, knit hats, sweaters, or festival tops, Midwest Made does it all. To find out more, visit Midwest Made Shop on Instagram, or check out the link I provide in the show notes. The podcast was also brought to you by our listener support over at Patreon. This show is a labor of love created for people like you who enjoy hearing the fact, fiction, and folklore of all things paranormal and unexplained. You can show your love for the show by becoming a patron, and contributing to the creation process here every month. Head on over to our Patreon page to find out more, as well as learn about our wonderful rewards that we offer. I've recently added a tier that offers an exclusive Patreon contributor-only t-shirt every six months, starting right away. You might want to check that out. Not interested in a monthly contribution? That is completely okay. I get it. You know, money can be tight sometimes. Trust me, I know. 
You can support the show in other ways, like leaving a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, or by following the show on social media. Whispers in the Night is available by looking up the name of the show or the handle at Whispers Podcast. Follow to keep in touch, learn the latest, and be in the know about exclusive deals we have through TeePublic. I'll leave links to them in the show notes, as well as in our new and improved website, whispersinthenightpodcast.com. I hope to see you there. So stay tuned and hang in tight. But until then, good night.